0: Amen. My wife asked me this week what I was going to preach about this morning. Are you getting a buzz out there? Sounds like there's a buzz going on. Move it up. Like there. My wife asked me what I was going to preach about this morning. uh, And I said, faith. And you know, if you're a pastor and your wife asks you what you're going to preach about, after you tell her, you want her to say something very encouraging. Like, wow, that's good. That's a profound subject. But the response I got was, uh, well... That's a big subject. And that's true enough, isn't it? Uh, Something that is so simple that children master it, and yet so wonderful that angels long to gaze at the workings surrounding it. Faith. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. I'll read that again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Faith is the assurance. It is the understructure, the foundation of that which we hope for. And it's the conviction of those things that we believe, but do not see with our senses, with our eyes. We understand that people can have faith in all sorts of things. We exercise faith every day. You and I get into our cars and we exercise faith in our vehicles that they're going to take us where we want to go. We exercise faith, some sort or some measure of faith in the people driving the other cars that they won't run into us as we're going where we want to go. We exercise faith in our friends, faith in our families. We exercise faith in our employers. We exercise faith every day, but these verses aren't talking about these other applications of faith. These verses are particularly talking about faith in God, specifically faith in what he has said as you look at the persons listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews, you see that some of them are exercising or having faith in a particular re- revelation that was made to them very specifically. And we're going to look at one of those first as an illustration, and then we're going to look at one that illustrates someone who is obeying or trusting in something that has been apparent to everyone, that God has made apparent to everyone. But finally... They're both exercising faith in what God has said. Faith in who he is. So let's look at these two examples from Hebrews 11, verse 17, please. Abraham, and only one aspect of Abraham's faith I want to look at this morning, or one part of his faith, or one demonstration of his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your generations, or I'm sorry, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now, if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, you know that God came to Abraham and he asked. Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him to, to God. And this is a very, very unusual part of the narrative of God's work with his people in the Old Testament. And it was done as a test for Abraham, but it was also done finally as an illustration of the type that God would provide, the reality, the reality God provided in Christ. So Isaac and this sacrifice became a type of what God would provide later on. And if you know the story, Abraham and Isaac go to the mountain to have the sacrifice. Isaac doesn't know what's going on. They get to the top of the mountain, and just as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, God stops him, and God provides an animal to be sacrificed instead now, if you've read the narrative in Genesis lately about Abraham and about the build-up of his life prior to Isaac's birth, you probably remember that he was promised, as God brought him out of the Ur of Chaldees and brought him into the land of Canaan, he was promised the land, he was promised what? Numerous descendants. How numerous? So many that they couldn't be be counted, like sand on the seashore like the stars of the heavens. And so Abraham, with that promise, waited, and he waited a long time. And finally, his wife was tired of not having any children, so she brought her maidservant to Abraham, saying, you can have children through my maidservant, Hagar. And so Abraham took Hagar, and by his union with her, he was given a son, Ishmael. And if you remember that as God was speaking once again to Abraham about the promise he had made and he was giving him further information about the promise, God told him about his descendants, but he said, your descendants will go through, will come through Sarah. It will be a son that will come through Sarah. Do you remember what Abraham said? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham loved his son Ishmael, I'm convinced. And he wanted God to receive Ishmael as that child of the promise. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But this was no good because it didn't clearly show, and it wasn't God's plan, and and obviously it didn't clearly show God's miraculous work in providing that seed that he was going to give finally in Christ to all of us. So what happens? Isaac Sarah conceives and Isaac is born. And his birth is, as you remember if you've read the narrative, miraculous in that Sarah was beyond the childbearing years. In fact, when she was told that she she was going to be pregnant, she laughed at the very thought that she would have a child. And then Abraham does something very difficult. He's told to send Ishmael away. And remember, I believe he loved Ishmael, and he does. He sends Ishmael away. Hagar and Ishmael leave, and they're no longer with Abraham and Sarah there. So it's Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and now God has given the child of promise, and what does God say to Abraham then? Go and offer him up. Go and sacrifice him. It's hard to think of how difficult this may have been to go and sacrifice Isaac. You know, some of us have a hard time just raising our children in the norm, under the normal understanding of what God expects of us to discipline our children and to love our children and to care for our children. But consider what Abraham had to deal with here as his faith in God had grown and developed over the years. He'd already sent away his son Ishmael And this time it wasn't God asking him to send away another son. It was God asking him to kill his son. And this time it wasn't just the son that Abraham wished could have been pleasing in God's sight and lived before God. This time it was the son that Abraham knew was the promised one, the promised son that was given to him. Abraham couldn't see the outcome. But what we see from the narrative is his feet were on a solid place. He had found a solid place to stand. He believed God. And even as they were walking up the mountain, what does Isaac say to him? Well, here's the wood. We've got everything we need, but where's the sacrifice? And do you remember Abraham's response? God will provide for himself the lamb. And as we see, that's illustrative finally of Jesus coming much later. Look back at at, uh, Hebrews 11 again, verse 31. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. If you remember the story, Israel had come out of Egypt, they had spent their time in the wilderness wandering, and now, after the generation of those of, of the people who had been disobedient had all died, except two, they were prepared to enter into the promised land and receive what God had promised to Abraham, what, 400 years before. And what stood in their way was the city of Jericho. And so they sent spies into the city. And when the spies got into the city, they were welcomed and cared for by a woman, a prostitute named Rahab. And in fact, after the... The, uh, oh, the I can't think of what his title was in the scripture. The governor, the king of the city, that's what it was. The king of the city came to Rahab and asked her if she knew where the spies were. And she hid them and she lied and she... Protected them. She said, They've gone. They've gone away. But they were hidden up on her roof. And in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And this is what brought on the notation in Hebrews 11 of Rahab that says, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. It's interesting to me that the older exodus generation that died in the wilderness just before they went into, into Canaan that they did not fear God and trust him they would not believe and so they all died, they perished but here in Jericho was Rahab a prostitute and what does it say she feared God and she believed and it was counted to her accredited to her. She was delivered through it. Even though she could not physically see the outcome, her feet had already found a solid place to stand. She'd already found a place to stand that she trusted. She was assured of what was going to happen. And so she took action. If you read the accounts in Hebrews 11, you'll notice that all of the people given in the accounts are commended for their faith. But they're also commended because their faith had action. They all did something. Their trust in God resulted in some action that they performed. I remember an old illustration of faith uh, that you may have heard before, I don't know. But it's an illustration that describes how faith, how faith is really seen in our lives. And it's about a man who put a high-wire rope across Niagara Falls. And as he put the rope across, the crowd started to gather. And as he stood up getting ready to walk across, he turned to the crowd and he said, Now, how many of you believe that I can walk across this rope and come back safely? And, you know, a few people raised their hands and said they believed. And so he did. He proceeded to walk across and to come back, and he got back safely. And so he said, Well... I'm going to up the ante a little bit. How many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the rope and back safely? And a few more people raised their hands, and of course he immediately got his specially designed wheelbarrow, and he pushed it across, and he, come back and he came back safely. And then he asked again, how many of you believe I can take this load of weights, put it in the wheelbarrow, and push it across the rope and come back safely? And more people raised their hand because their confidence in him was growing. And sure enough, he went across the rope and he came back with the wheelbarrow and he was safe, even carrying the weights. And then you probably see what's coming. He says, how many of you think I can push one of you across in the wheelbarrow and come back safely? And everybody raised their hand. Sure, we've seen you do all this other stuff. And then he said, do I have any volunteers? Faith demands action. There has to be action that accompanies true faith. Of course, no one wanted to ride in the wheelbarrow. And I wouldn't want to ride in the wheelbarrow. Faith in God is demonstrated in our obedience to his word. I was thinking as as I was preparing for this of a man and so I went back and did some rereading of his history and are you familiar with George Mueller from Bristol <coughs> excuse me George Mueller was born in 1805 and he was a rebellious rebellious man when he was a youngster in fact the accounts are that when his mother was ill and dying he was out partying and drinking. He just had no, no care or concern, and he was only about 15 years old at the time. Just didn't care. And he continued in this lifestyle to the point that he was, became a thief, he became a drunk, he be, actually was uh, imprisoned at one point. And this was the life he lived. And he, he uh, used his father because his father would continually feed him money, but he would lie to his father about what was going on. So he'd say, well, I'm doing this and this, so I need some money. And his father didn't know that he was just out partying. He was deceiving his father. And George Mueller, while living that lifestyle, was invited one evening to go to a, well, what would essentially be what we have here, the home fellowship groups. George Mueller was invited to go to a home fellowship group with a friend. And he went. And he was a proud man, and he didn't care about anything. He was in his early 20s. And what what concerned him was how much fun he could have and how he could serve himself in life. And so he went to this to this home fellowship group. And what they did at the home fellowship group is they sang and they prayed and they read a sermon because at that time and in that place, you couldn't teach from the Bible unless you were ordained. So if you had a home fellowship group, you could only read a sermon that had been printed by someone was ordained. That's how it was set up. They read a sermon. But the thing that affected George Mueller at that group was, was an odd kind of thing. When he got to that group and they started praying, one of the guys started praying. who started praying got down on his knees, something that Mueller hadn't seen because he'd spent most of his life in Germany, where they pray standing up, or at the time they did. He got down on his knees, this man did, before God. He humbled himself before God. And Mueller, who came to that meeting with no expectation other than, well, it's something to do, Mueller was changed by that. He saw someone humble themselves before God. And it wasn't long, if you read the story and you're, you're able to get a copy of, his, of the biography of his life, it wasn't long before he was a believer himself Kneeling before God and learning how to pray and Mueller decided, possibly because of his past history with his father and how he had deceived over money i don't know, possibly just because God had arranged for him to have this wiring, and maybe his father's thing had something to do with it. He had decided early in his life as as a, as a believer that he would serve God wholeheartedly, and he would trust God by faith for everything, and so he became a pastor. He went to that church, and he and his wife decided they would go to the church, uh, which uh, was ready to receive their pastor and care for their pastor, but they would go without taking any pay. And so they declined to take any pay. They said they would only live on what God would provide for them. And I imagine they lived in a manse or a parsonage there, and (coughs) and they prayed and asked God to provide for their needs. Well, immediately Mueller started working. And he started developing Sunday schools and he started developing day schools and God prospered what he was doing. And he started a, a Bible school, like a theological school, and called the Scriptural Knowledge Institute. And by 1880, this, the theological institute that he founded had 7,000 students. He started an orphanage because he was convinced that God had a heart for the orphans. And so he started an orphanage. Everything he did, what did was uh, underwritten by prayer. There was there was there were no funding drives, there were no anything like that. Everything was underwritten by prayer. They would just pray. So he started an orphanage, and it started very small. And they prayed for things. And if you read the story, it's fantastic. You know, they had they needed food to feed the orphans in the morning, and the milk truck broke down out in front of the building, and the guy came in and said. You want all this milk because we don't have any, I can't do anything with it. Or a potato truck would just show up and unload all these potatoes. And over and over again, people would give him money and that was just the day that he needed the money for the orphans. And by the time we got to 1870, his orphanages had grown to where there were 2,000 orphans cared for in his orphanages. And it wasn't a place where they would go and just be uh, stuffed into rooms and nothing would happen with them. The, The workhouses and the the manufacturers around the area started to be upset with him because he deprived them of the workforce. Because he would take these children, and he wouldn't just turn them out into the workhouses. He would apprentice them, and he would teach them and train them, and wait until they got to a certain age, and then he would allow them to go to work. So there weren't these uh, ignorant child laborers that they could send into the factories and the mines. He was depriving the workforce of this because of his care for the children and how the Lord had helped him. As he went on in life, he became, uh, I think, when he was 70 years old, he decided that uh, he was going to leave his work in Bristol and start on the mission trip. This was when he was 70. So he started on a mission trip, a worldwide mission trip at 70. And he began a series of missionary tours, which he did for, I think, 13 years. Maybe. He lived in 93. No, it was longer than that. It was like uh, 18 years that he worked on these missionary trips. Again, all funded. He never took any money. Nothing was ever underwritten. At one point, someone came to the orphanage and asked one of the matrons of the orphanage, well, uh, Of course, you can't carry on these institutions without a good stock of funds. Uh, Have you a good stock of funds to carry on your orphanage? And the matron looked at him and said, Our funds are deposited in a bank which cannot break. Their, Their understanding of God's provision was so beautiful because of the faith that they had grown in and come to know. Now, George Mueller could not physically see the answers to the prayers he made while trusting the promises of God. But his feet found a firm place to stand. He simply believed God at his word when he said that he would be the father to the fatherless. And as I thought about Mueller's life, I thought, how do you think at the end of his life when he's 93 years old and he's going to his last home fellowship group, how do you think he he felt about Jesus' words in Matthew 6? Do you think he heard them the way that we hear them? Listen to Jesus. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Look at the grass of the field. Why are you worried about food? Look at the birds of the air. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do you think George Mueller heard those verses? He had seen so much of the richness of God's provision in his life. It was fantastic. And yet, when he was 93, he still had to trust God. He still had to have faith every day. What is it that you need faith for? Now, when I ask that question, what do you need faith for, I'm not asking you what miracle you need or how much money do you want. This sermon isn't about personal fulfillment as our world would have us to be fulfilled. It's about sanctification and obedience to God. What do you need faith for? To what part of your life has God spoken? What's the area that you cannot physically see the outcome of right now? Where do you see a need for you to conform to his will? What assurances have you come to regarding his faithfulness? How firm is the place on which you stand? As I'm thinking about and as our, as I was thinking about application to this, I picked out a broad range of things that will probably cover some of us many times. But listen, if you would, to To the application of some of the areas in your life that God may want you to grow in faith, where you may need to trust in Him. Relationships. Relationships. All those instructions in the Bible that we're supposed to do for one another. Do you remember them? Love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, laugh with one another, cry with one another. Be hospitable hospitable to one another. The list goes on for quite a while. These are the commands of God. Do you have faith to do them? Do I have faith to do them? These commands are to be obeyed in very practical ways. You can't cry with someone who is mourning if you're staying at home to watch the ball game. Or to watch a new movie that's out while that person is in the house of of mourning, in the house of tears. You can't encourage someone that you haven't listened to. You can't bear someone's burden if you don't feel the weight of it on your back. We must develop faith in our relationships with one another. We do not physically see the result, but we know what the outcome will be because we stand on the firm foundation of God's promises that this is what he wants us to do and that there will be an outcome that will glorify him. How about marriage? We had a marriage here yesterday and it was beautiful. Once once again, we're reminded of what God has said about marriage. How do we exercise faith in marriage? How are we obedient? Do I mean all that stuff about being exclusive in our intimacy, caring for our wives as we care for our own bodies, giving up our lives, submission, and all those things? Is that what I mean? Well, yes, that's what I mean. But each of these things is fleshed out in our individual marriages with real circumstances. Men We really do have to exercise our faith in the provision for and care for our families. There really is a need for us to go to work, to keep the car running, to teach and to love and to discipline our children. It's real. The application is real and personal. And women, wives, when we live our lives caring for our households, submitting to our husbands, there really is the actual working, the application of how that's done to keep the household in order and to keep the care for the children. It's, it's real. It's not just this thing up there we talk about. It hits the road. We don't see all of the outcomes. By faith... We go to work. By faith, we keep the car running. By faith, we do the dishes. By faith, we take care of the children and love them. We don't see what the final outcome is going to be, but we stand on a firm foundation, God's promises to us. We must live our marriages in our marriages by faith. What about work? I was thinking about work and preparing for this, and I was thinking, you know, work is the perfect place to become a thief and a liar. Did you ever think about that? You have so many opportunities at work to become a thief and a liar. An irate customer calls you on the phone, and it's probably your fault that they're irate. And what could you do so easily is blame the guy in shipping. Right? But what is that? That's bearing false witness against someone. And you've become a liar. I used to work for Frito-Lay, and the company had a habit of forcing out products, which means they had too much of something and they had to get rid of it. And if you had big stores like I did, I had three large stores, They might force out four or five, force out four or five hundred dollars worth of product per store in one day, and I'm standing at the back door, and I've got to explain to this guy why he needs this five hundred dollars worth of product that he doesn't really need. How easy would it be to lie? Now I had to try to sell it. That was my job, but I didn't have to lie. But I know many people who would, in a situation like that, would lie and say, well, you know, this, this, and this happened, and then this happened, and the other thing happened, and just—and it's got to be taken in, and it's no, you know, you've got to take it. It's such an easy place to be a thief. Just the tip of the scale in our favor, just a tip of the a watch of the time clock that comes in our favor. And suddenly, we've stolen. We've been dishonest. How do we exercise faith at work with a just scale? Keeping our agreements, not stealing. Honoring those in authority over us. Truthfulness. We stand on a solid foundation at work when we trust in what God has said and we live our lives according to what he has said even though our physical eyes may not see it. And what happens then after telling the truth and after doing things right, you get fired? What happens then? What does God say about that? Well, you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Once again, when it comes to persecution in our lives, and maybe especially when it comes to persecution in our lives, we have to trust God and stand on the firm foundation of his word, what he has said to us. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator, in doing what is right. What about school, where I'm in school? What about the university, if you're in the university? What does it mean to have faith? Well, in part, it means to stand firm in the face of huge indoctrination because they have huge programs for indoctrination. You know, I, I, I laugh and I'm sad at the same time when I, when I read the newest thing coming out of science, and what scientists are saying now. And I watch them as they've got these rovers on and Mars, and I love the astronomy website. I love to go there, and they show pictures from the rovers. And they're, they're taking the rover, and they're zeroing in on this rock that looks like the shape of a football. And they're talking and talking endlessly about, how did this rock get to be the shape? How did that happen? And they go on and on and they're talking about its formation and they're talking about the crystals in the rock and they're trying to get the machine to take studies and tests of the crystals so they can determine everything that happened on Mars. And I'm thinking the same systems that they've been arguing about for years and years and years here and can't come to grips with, they're just applying up there now on Mars. And then I laugh even further when they talk about the furthest extents of the universe and how they're convinced when they look out there and they see this and that and the twist of this and these little light doing this and this little light doing that, and it's fifty seven billion light years old, the light that they're viewing at the time, and they say, Well then this happened and this happened and that happened and that's how it was. And and I'm not saying science can't know something. They can. But so often we we spend so much of our time in what we call science just trying to prove that one thing isn't true. And that's also in Hebrews chapter 11, the next verse. We spend all of our time on verse 3, trying to disprove that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And we work and work and work, just trying to do everything we can to suppress that one truth. And it's laughable, but it's also horrible. Horrible. What about children? Do you have faith in raising your children? Are you exercising your faith? Are you standing on a firm foundation if, if you were to see your name printed in Hebrews 11, what would it say? Would it say, by faith, you loved your children and you disciplined your children and you cared for your children and you taught them the truth about God? Is that what it would say about you? If it wouldn't say that about you, then you need to exercise your faith concerning your children. You need to find a solid foundation of God, His Word to stand on, and you need to act and exercise your faith and come to trust in God as He takes you through the wonder of what he has planned for you in raising your children. Some of us have lives that we've made total messes of. And you may be here this morning and your life may just be chaos, just might be a mess. And you may be a new Christian or you may have been messing around for years, uh, kind of bouncing against the church and bouncing back and bouncing against the church and bouncing back, it's time to exercise faith in God and obey Him. God can deliver you from the chaos that you've made of your life. That doesn't mean that you won't still live through some of the consequences that you have set yourself up for. But God is faithful to take you through difficulties, even the difficulties that you've made a mess, that that are your own doing and my own doing. God is faithful to do that. And it's an exercise in faith to trust Him to walk through those situations and to obey Him with them as we go. What about the church? Are you... On again, off again with church. Are you on again and off again coming to God's people and gathering with them and getting the very things that He has provided God's people to give to you here? Exercise your faith. Get a, get a go into church. Get to a small group. Join the choir. Go to women's group. What about giving? George Mueller understood about about Mm -hmm. financial things in one sense, didn't he? He understood how, how God would provide everything. And there's a sense that that applies exactly to what we do when we give on Sundays in the offering or when we give in any way as unto the Lord in private, in private donations that we make to people. We, like George Mueller, are trusting God when we give our gifts and our offerings to Him. We are trusting Him. And the Bible says we should do it joyfully, hilariously, and exuberantly, and extravagantly. You know, you read those places in the Old Testament where they were giving so much money to the work of the temple, they had to tell the people to stop. And they were having a blast with it. Have you learned how to give to God with your finances? Have you learned how to exercise your faith in that way? Have you learned how to take out your checkbook? This is faith. This is how it really works. You take out your checkbook and you write the check. You take out your wallet and you take out the money. You put them in the basket or the plate. Or you send them in the envelope to the person who needs something. Or you do whatever. This is faith. This is how we trust God. Well, that money... That money might save me. That money might pay my bills. That money might protect my family. That money might be the very thing that I need in this life. And that money might be more important to you than God himself. But we have to see that God is the ruler of our lives. And money so often becomes the thing that stands between he and us. Have you learned how to give? Have you found a firm foundation in giving? Evangelism. You can make the application there. What do you need to do? How do you need to stand firm? <coughs> I thought of something interesting as I was reading Hebrews 11 as an application. If you're older here this morning, if you're an older person in our congregation, or you know an older, older person in our congregation who's not here, how do we trust in God when we're older? How do we, how do we establish our faith? How do we show our faith when we're older? So many people, when they get older, they despair. How do we exercise faith in our old age? Well, as I read Hebrews 11, this is what jumped out at me. Here was Abraham, and what what, what was he, a spring chicken when he was hauling Isaac up the mountain? He was an old man. And what does it say about Jacob? It says that when he was dying... He leaned on his staff. Was that what he leaned on? And he worshipped. When he was dying, he was worshipping. And what does it say about Joseph in Israel? It says, as he was dying, he gave instructions about what they should do with his bones when they left Egypt. And so Joseph, as an act of faith, said, okay, I'm dying now, but... In 400 years, you guys are all going to be leaving. Well, not you, but your your children's children's children. I want you to take my bones and watch them carefully because when everybody leaves, I'm going with them. Psalm 92 says that the righteous, when they are in old age, are green and full of sap and bearing fruit. Read that if you need encouragement to have faith and you're older. They're green and full of sap and they bear fruit even in old age. Finally, this morning in closing, most foundational to our faith is faith and trust in God for our own salvation. And you may be here this morning and you may you may have not trusted God concerning your own salvation. You may be here and thinking, well, I've been coming around for a while. I've been coming to these groups. I've been coming to this or that. Or someone invited me. This is my second time here. Whatever the story might be. Or maybe you've been here a long time and you've just been here. And you haven't ever come to the point where you understood what it meant to stand on a firm foundation and trust God that He would get you free from your sin and that He would get you delivered from hell. You might might be here and you've been thinking, well, I'll take care of getting myself delivered from sin and I'll I'll take care of getting myself out of judgment. But you can't do it. Again, God has made His Word perfectly clear. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are delivered from our sin and delivered from the, the just wrath of God. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here and you've not found uh, that firm foundation of faith, if you've not believed in Jesus Christ, if you've not believed that He has died and saved you by His death and by His resurrection, you by the power that raised Him from the dead, you will be raised from the dead. If you have not believed that, I invite you this morning to believe it. If you're not familiar with all the real, all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus, I'd be glad to talk with you, and there are lots here who would be glad to talk with you this morning about the circumstances surrounding Him and what He's done for you. But I invite you to believe in Jesus Christ and to trust God at His Word with what He has said about your salvation. I want to read in closing... Some verses from 1 Peter, chapter 1. Just listen, please. I'll be skipping through the chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you verse 8 and though we and though you have not seen him right anybody seen him physically and though you have not seen him this jesus you love him and though do you do not see him now you believe in him you re- you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls therefore prepare your minds for action verse 13 be sober in spirit fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, which were yours in your ignorance But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Stand on the word of God. This is obedience. This is holiness. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God? What foundation do you stand on? Are your faith and hope in God? Let's pray.